Thank you, David. And for those of you who didn't hear the announcement, uh, we're not leaving you to your own devices. If you need one, raise your hand and they can bring you one. Uh, Don Castell, uh, one of our uh, senior leaders in the field of GI and esophagology, uh, used to say that the definition of a professor is somebody who sleeps in other people's speak. Say it that way. The audience sleeps to his speech. I say professor is someone who speaks while other people eat. So in any event, there we go. So I'm going to extend a little bit the conversation I had this morning regarding where we're at with optimizing biologics and expand it in some ways and try and shorten it to another. But the real question is that keeps coming up is how do we optimize in, in which patient, what time, how do we actually do it? And this is going to be dependent on a number of both objective and subjective uh, aspects, as well as cost, as we're going to hear much later in the discussion. So I'm going to talk about the different classes of biologics that we've uh, identified thus far, and then proceed into a bit of optimization of what we know, and as we heard in the prior session, certainly what we don't know. TNF inhibitors have been around now for well over 20 years, since 1998, with the um, uh, approval of infliximab as a single infusion for patients with moderate to severe Crohn's disease or for three infusions in patients with fistulizing disease. So it's pretty obvious that over the years we've already learned many things, including that induction, high-dose induction, and maintenance therapy is going to be necessary. But despite all this and despite multiple mechanisms of action, um, we don't know exactly how the TNF inhibitors work. So for instance, um, uh, we know that the anti-TNFs that are approved for IBD, which include two different classes, monoclonal antibodies, which are infliximab, adalumumab, and golumumab, antibody fragments or polyethylene glycolated products processes such as sertiluzumab-pegol have different functional aspects in assays. And an anti-TNF that our rheumatologic colleagues use all the time, etanercept, was not effective in the treatment of Crohn's disease at the same doses as was used in rheumatoid arthritis. But I would also point out that if we used infliximab, adalumumab, or sertiluzumab in IBD the same way we do in uh, rheumatoid arthritis, those doses were not effective in IBD. A newcomer and different mechanism of action with vetalizumab, you all know now, in, uh, binds to the alpha-4 beta-7 integrin on lymphocytes or white cells that would be targeted into the gut, yet there are still aspects of why, how we don't know how vetalizumab works. If we're dosing according to receptor saturation, and that's how we get a single dose for vetalizumab, why are there drug levels that are actually correlated with mucosal healing? So we're still beginning to, still needing to learn more about mechanistic aspects. And most recently on the market for Crohn's disease and being tested in ulcerative colitis, which is ustekinumab, the inhibitor of interleukin-12, IL-23 in combination, effective in Crohn's disease, inhibits, <coughs> excuse me, inhibits 
downstream production of TNF. <coughs> Yet, you, as you heard in Bill Sanborn's discussion, I've got it, I'm good today, thank you, today, um, we don't see some of the anticipated infections that we've seen with TNF inhibition, even though TNF is inhibited to a partial degree. So we've learned a lot about the effectiveness, but also there's still questions regarding exact mechanisms of action. As I mentioned, there have been four TNF agents evaluated for Crohn's disease, but only infliximab, adalumumab, and sertoluzumab pegol have been effective in controlled trials. And I already mentioned that etanercept, while tested, when tested at same doses as rheumatoid arthritis, was not effective, but there's still opportunity to look at etanercept in higher doses. And there are some reasons why rheumatologists select one of these versus another. So for instance, they may think that etanercept is more effective than ankyl in ankylosing spondylitis. Well, we could consider using that in patients who have concomitant diseases. The three drugs that have been effective have similar efficacies in cross-trial comparisons. These are not head-to-head -head trials, which are greatly needed. And we also need to understand that the dosing that we're giving of these is different. The dosing of infliximab is probably actually higher than the dosing of adalumumab in clinical practice. And likewise, adalumumab higher dosing compared to sertoluzumab pegol. We have learned that in post hoc, in all of the maintenance studies where patients were enrolled, whether or not they failed an immunosuppressive, that immunosuppressives don't make a difference in combination therapy with biologics in either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. There was no difference in the maintenance studies in the patients who were failing. On the other hand, as we'll show again, in prospective studies in bio-naive and immunosuppressive-naive patients, that's where we see a difference. And in these post-hoc analyses, the trials were not powered or intended to show a difference with or without immunosuppressives. So moving forward, and I love the, the number of post-hoc experiments that have proven to be wrong when we move prospectively. We've seen this with uh, stopping immunosuppressives we, in Crohn's disease after four years. Post hoc seemed to make no difference. Randomized prospectively makes a difference. Same with the combo therapy. Post hoc, we did not see a difference. Prospective, with a slight change in the population, we do see a difference. In ulcerative colitis, there are three different TNF inhibitors that have been approved, infliximab, adalumumab, and golumumab. Neither etanercept nor sertoluzumab pegol have been evaluated in extensive uh, prospective studies. Again, when we look at cross-trial comparisons, we don't see much of a difference, but we don't have head-to-head -head studies with any of these agents. We have also learned that going to the second biologic is not as effective as patients who are treated with their first biologic. This is an example of infliximab to adalumumab. 
it includes both primary and secondary non-responders. But when we uh, see the same thing with, um, as we move to from a TNF inhibitor to another a biologic, either vetaluzumab or ustekinumab, or even to a non-biologic with tofacitinib, as we learned earlier this morning. We've also learned that in ulcerative colitis, combination therapy is more effective than monotherapy, again, in bio and immunosuppressive naive patients. These are not patients failing one therapy and then continued. And we've also learned that methotrexate can reduce immunogenicity. Now, there's a lot of advocation for methotrexate up in the panels, but I would point out that we have a heck of a lot more data regarding the thiopurines than we do with methotrexate, and a lot of this advocacy is based on speculative safety comparisons between thiopurines and methotrexate. Um, we have learned that we can approach these diseases in different mechanisms of action. Vitaluzumab, as I mentioned, in, uh, binds to the alpha-4 integrin on lymphocytes, prevents their egress into the tissues in patients with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And the binder to alpha-4 beta-7, which is the addressin on the endothelial cells called MADCAM, is unique to the gut and accounts for the gut specificity of vetaluzumab in comparison to other anti-integrins that you know of, such as um, nataluzumab or tisabri, which is uh, binds to the alpha-4 beta-7, excuse me, the alpha-4 integrin that binds to the VCAM, vascular cell adhesion molecule, which is everywhere in the body. It's not specific, and hence nataluzumab may be associated with this uh, reactivation of the brain uh, virus. Vitaluzumab has had comparable, but not comparative, we haven't compared the efficacy, but it appears to be comparable to other biologic agents, and Brian Fagan did a good job of comparing some of the rapidity of response of vetaluzumab to the anti-TNF agents that we are uh, familiar with. But one of the interesting long-term uh, uh, benefits of vetaluzumab is the maintenance therapy. We don't see the apparent loss of response over time that we sometimes see with the TNF inhibitors when we're using vetaluzumab. So the several year data looks very good for the patients who initially respond. Most recently, ustekinumab has been marketed, as we well know, in the setting of Crohn's disease. Um, it has this different mechanism of action. It is actually proximal to TNF inhibition and inhibits a number of downstream mediators and cell activation. But surprisingly, despite this proximal inhibition, has an excellent safety profile, as Bill uh, described earlier. Again, the response rates seem to be comparable, but when we separate the patients who were bio-naived in Unity 2 versus those who were bio-exposed in Unity 1, again, the absolute response rates are better.
Your first biologic is your best opportunity to do things right. And recently, we've seen three-year data now for ustekinumab with similar long-term benefits. We're not seeing the loss of response in the responders that we sometimes see with TNF inhibition. Now, we have began, we had an extensive discussion this morning regarding therapeutic drug monitoring with the biologic therapies, and we are going to be continuing these discussions over the next two days. We have recognized with all of the agents a relationship of the exposure to response. But the more biologic the response, the better we see that correlation. In other words, the correlation of drug levels to symptoms is not as good as the correlation of blood levels to mucosal healing or mucosal improvement. Um, but there remain to be a number of questions regarding TDM that we're trying to uh, answer along the way. And I'd say, as you saw from the discussions this morning, we're not totally there yet. We've recognized a number of factors that have been associated with loss of response to the monoclonal antibodies, in particular immunogenicity. But I think Maria Abreu was terrific this morning in emphasizing how some patients lose response mechanistically not related to drug levels and not related to anti-drug antibodies. So we still are learning. And one of the things that we're finding in, in the controversies between Bill Sanborn and some of the others on the panel was whether or not TDM should be driving dose escalation or whether we should be dose escalating to assess the response and the pharmacoeconomics of both of those different approaches. Um, I'm not going to go over the algorithm for loss of response. I think we all know that by now. So I look at things in two different ways, failure to uh, induce and failure to maintain. Failure to induce includes factors associated with rapid clearance, and we discussed ulcerative colitis, including the inflammatory burden, high biomarkers such as CRP. Dave Rubin mentioned that body weight can make a difference, whether fixed dosing or milligram per kilogram dosing. But it's important to recognize that albumin is a marker of rapid clearance of these drugs, and patients with low albumins are going to uh, rapidly clear them and have a much more faster clearance and loss of uh, drug levels. Failure to maintain invokes several other factors, including the dosing, the drug levels, as well as, excuse me, the um, uh, loss of mechanism. Boy, those these are just flipping. Now, one of the questions becomes, can you actually make the antibodies go away? And there was one case series reported from Israel that suggested that either azathioprine or 6-MP may actually get rid of antibodies. We've yet to see a replication of these series, um, but at the panel, sometimes the panelists will say, well, add an immunomodulator at that point. Um, there is some evidence, but it's not very strong thus far that that's going to be effective. So how do we ultimately choose between these different biologics? We already have three different mechanisms of actions with biologics, 
and a JAK inhibitor, an oral agent that is uh, also recently approved for ulcerative colitis. How do we select between the patients? Well, it's going to depend on a variety of different factors, and as Corey Siegel emphasizes, a shared decision-making between the clinician and our patients. The patients who are very sick need rapid responses. On the other hand, perhaps a steroid-dependent patient who's doing well may not need as rapid a response, but is going to be interested in long-term safety just as two very ends of the same spectrum for individuals. So there are a number of other topics that are going to be discussed by uh, Ray and by David and within future symposia. We certainly don't know everything about these agents. We've got a lot to learn about TDM and other aspects, including combining mechanisms of action, which is something that the KOLs at the podium are very interested in doing, but when we take it into practice, it really has been uh, a very challenging economic approach to combine biologic therapies. So with that introduction and kind of review of what I said this morning, uh, I think uh, Ray Cross is going to be discussing the role of biosimilars. Ray?